0: Well, our text this morning is Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, which is really a continuation of chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Paul has established that a person is made right with God by faith and faith alone. In Romans 4, he proves this to be true by pointing to the forefather of the Jewish people, Abraham. How was Abraham justified? How is it that Abraham, the paragon of righteousness, was made right with God? He is a demonstration of how faith justifies us before God. If faith and faith alone justifies, how does that faith do that work? It is because that faith is counted as righteousness to us. So when God justifies us, he does not only forgive our sin. He doesn't only remove unrighteousness. He doesn't only provide us with forgiveness, not counting that against us. Not only does he expunge it from our record... But he also gives to us righteousness. And last week we talked about the word imputation. He imputes righteousness to us. A righteousness that is not our own. So there is this righteousness that comes from uh, removal of sin and removal of guilt. And there is righteousness that comes as a gift. A positive righteousness, if you will. This is the only way that a person could be made right with God. Our sin, our offenses must be forgiven and removed. And Paul actually describes how this happens in chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of That is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Redemption. God purchases us. He pays a ransom for us. And that ransom is a propitiation, a sacrifice, Jesus' death, which stays the wrath of God. So that is how we receive this forgiveness, this cleansing, but we must also obtain some positive righteousness. The righteousness of the demands of the law must be fulfilled. And like Abraham then, our faith is counted to us as righteousness because we could never fulfill the demands of the law. Even if our guilt for breaking the law is forgiven, the law still has to be fulfilled through obedience. We can't do that. We trust in God to provide the righteousness that we need to stand before him. So in Romans 4, we're in the middle of looking at six ways that Abraham's justification proves that our faith is counted to us as righteousness. It's almost as though Paul writes these things as if his claims that justification by faith alone, apart from works, apart from our own efforts, apart from whatever might be credited to our account before God. When Paul argues for this justification by faith alone, it's almost as though he is countering a challenge to that, as if someone... We'll hear Paul say that and then say, what? Just faith? How can it be just faith? And Paul's answer, his proof is, well, look at Abraham. Look at Abraham. And so we saw last time that, first of all, Abraham's justification proves that righteousness is imputed, not earned. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Abraham's justification proves righteousness is imputed. It is counted to us. It is credited to us, not earned by us. Even Abraham, this pinnacle of righteousness, could not boast of works. When he was in the presence of God, Abraham did not pull out his credentials, he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited to his account. It was imputed to him. Secondly, we saw that Abraham's justification proves righteousness is a gift received, verses 4 through 8. There are these two approaches to obtaining righteousness. You can demand from God the wages of your works the wages that your works have earned you. Or you can confess that you are ungodly and then trust in him to credit righteousness to you. In other words, receiving it as a gift of grace then from him who justifies the ungodly. So there are these two ways to obtain righteousness. Righteousness. You can try to obtain it by claiming, I've done this work, I've performed this, I have not done those things, therefore, my wages are righteousness. Or you can confess that there's no way that you could ever attain that and trust in him who justifies the ungodly. Thirdly, We saw, and by the way, that's the only way to blessing, right? He quotes David in Psalm 32. It's the only way to blessing is to trust God. It only comes from his grace. Thirdly, we saw that Abraham's justification proves that Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. Paul goes on to clarify that this blessing, God's favor is not destined for Abraham's ethnic national descendants only, but for all who believe in him, him who justifies the ungodly. Both the Gentile, the uncircumcised, and the Jew, the circumcised, find righteousness, obtain righteousness the same way. After all... Abraham's righteousness was counted to him before the sign of the covenant, before circumcision. That's Paul's argument. And so the only way for any person to obtain righteousness before God is to walk in Abraham's footsteps of faith. And those who do call Abraham father are his descendants. All right, with that, then, we continue in chapter 4, verse 13. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist." And hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief... It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Father, thank you for your power that is at work within us to transform our thinking with truth, to comfort us in hardship, to give us victory over temptation. Lord, nourish us now, strengthen us with your word. In your name, amen. So the fourth way Abraham's justification proves our faith is counted as righteousness then, is that we are heirs of the promise. We are heirs of the promise. Abraham's justification proves that we are heirs of the promise. If Abraham is our father, and this is Paul's line of reasoning. If Abraham is our father, then we are Abraham's offspring. And if we are Abraham's offspring, then we are his heirs. We inherit the promise that God made him, which means we are included in the promise. We are the beneficiaries, if you will, of God's promise. How so? Well, for one thing, the promise came through the righteousness of faith, not through the law. It came through the righteousness of faith, not through the law. Again, this is possible because the promise to Abraham and his offspring did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. In fact, for anyone who seeks to inherit the promise by having the law, Paul says faith is completely ineffective. It's made null. And the promise itself is empty of any value. Even for those to whom it was made, even Abraham's uh, ethnic descendants, the Jewish people, their national identity, their adherence to the law in and of itself Nullifies or makes the promise void. Because the only way that the promise can be realized, grasped, is through faith. Even for them who have the law, it has to be through faith. Verse 14, look at verse 14 again. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void... What he means then is the person who who tries to or assumes because they have the law that they inherit the promise actually removes themselves from inheriting the promise. They are outside of it. And it has to be this way. It has to be this way because, Paul says, the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. What he means here in verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression, is simply that the law draws a line for sin to cross and turns sin into transgression, which brings greater consequences. Paul doesn't mean that if the law was never given, that there would be no consequences for sin, no judgment. What he means is that the law identifies sin. It calls it out, if you will. Think of it this way. Think of your your home, backyards. Most of our backyards probably have fences that divide them from other people's yards. If there were no fences, what is my backyard would still be my property. And if someone were to come onto my property, they still would be trespassing. They still would be guilty of being on my property without permission. That is sin. We're all wandering around in sin on God's property, if you will. The law came along and set up fences. The fences do not keep us from climbing over and trespassing or transgressing those boundaries. It also, the law, does not keep us from wanting to. The law simply defines this is where the boundaries are. This is right and wrong. This is somebody else's property. So that when we cross that fence and trespass, we incur a greater guilt. Paul's point is that the law only builds the fence... It doesn't keep us from trespassing. It doesn't keep us from wanting to, but it makes us more guilty because now we know where the property line is. And Paul's point is simply this. That law that builds those fences is good and right, but it cannot make you an heir of Abraham. It cannot justify you. God's design from the beginning was that the promise depends on faith. It depends on faith. And it doesn't depend on faith because God was trying to make it easy on us or because God was, trying to, uh, God was willing to just kind of bypass the law and say, well, they could never do it anyway if they'll just trust in me. No, God realized our incapacity, but God makes it by faith because God gets the glory when you trust Him. You see, faith puts the promise's guarantee, its reality for you and for me in God's hands. It puts it in His grace, and it makes Abraham the father of us all. We have to trust Him. This is why people, by and large, don't trust God, because it requires a humbling of the heart to believe him instead of trying to attain. So we know that this happens because the promise came through the righteousness of faith, not the law. For another thing, we are the many nations of the promise, We are the many nations of the promise. This is a truth that Paul builds on Genesis chapter 17, verse 5. I have made you the father of many nations. And Genesis chapter 17 is a a reiteration of the the promises to Abraham. It's in Genesis 17 that God first uh, establishes the need for the sign of the covenant, circumcision, circumcision. Paul is saying that this statement means a lot more than Abraham would have many descendants. Paul is saying that in this declaration, I have made you the father of many nations, isn't just numerical, but it has to do with all peoples of the world. Paul is saying that with this promise, God is actually promising that the world's nations would all have some who call Abraham father. This is a promise of the church all the way back in Genesis 17. That's what the connection that the apostle Paul is making. This is a, a promise of the church. How can Jesus' church call Abraham father? Father. How can we as the church claim Abraham's promise to inherit it? Because of faith. Faith is what links us to the plan of God from the very beginning. We also see here that God does the impossible. God does the impossible. The promise's guarantee is ensured by the power and presence of God. That's verse 17. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What this means then is that this, this transaction, this count, Abraham's believing God and God's counting it to him as righteousness, took place in the presence of God. And that it is God who gives life to the dead, and it is God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. The power that brought life from Abraham and Sarah's aged dead bodies and that created the universe out of nothing is the very power by which God fulfills his promise to Abraham by making you righteous and making me righteous. He is the God who does the impossible. He is the God who never fails. And this truth makes way then for the next point. Because if God gives life to the dead, if God creates the universe out of nothing, then he is worthy of unwavering faith. He is worthy of unwavering faith. Abraham's justification proves faith overcomes unbelief. This is the fifth way. Abraham's justification proves faith overcomes unbelief. The opposite of faith is what? Not doubt, it is unbelief. It is unbelief. That's why, as a child of God, you and I can even experience doubts. We go through waves of doubt and questioning and wondering, right? We're frail. God knows that we are made of dust. But unbelief is something different. Unbelief is an unwillingness to take God at his word, to trust God when he speaks. Whether that's a statement of his identity, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It might be a promise that he makes, I will never leave you or forsake you? It might be a declaration of his will. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Obedience requires faith, believing him. But unbelief refuses to believe and embrace. Abraham, what about Abraham? Abraham had every reason to disbelieve God's promise that he would be the father of many nations. To disbelieve God's promise, so shall your offspring be. He had every reason. And Paul documents them here. First was the consideration of his own body, which was as good as dead because he was almost 100 years old. And then Sarah's barrenness. Sarah is just as old as Abraham, has never had any children. When God makes Abraham this promise, she's been barren. Having even one offspring was biologically impossible, let alone fathering many nations. But, Paul says, he did not weaken in his faith. He did not weaken in faith. Do you ever count all of the circumstances? Do you ever rack up all of the impossibilities only to have your confidence in God shaken? I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking here, okay? I'm talking about real hardships in life, difficult decisions. We do, don't we? We rack them up. And we know this is impossible, this is impossible, this is impossible. And God says, trust me, trust me, trust me. And that doesn't always mean... That the difficulty or the hardship will be avoided or reversed. But when God makes a statement about his identity or his character, when God makes a promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, when God declares his will, that these are promises we must embrace even when everything around us says the opposite. Even when we have every human reason for not trusting God, we are called to trust Him. Maybe it is that you think maybe God isn't who He says He is. I'm not sure God really loves me. How can He love me and allow this to have happened in my life? God says He will forgive me, but I just don't feel it. It just doesn't make sense. Or the Bible says I'm sinful. The Bible says that it's right for God to judge me and that someday he will. Mm, I, I doubt it. Really? I don't buy that. That isn't just doubt. That is unbelief. In every one of these, our sight determines our path. In every one of these, our understanding establishes truth. Unbelief is actually rooted in pride. It's rooted in pride. That's why so often much of our anxiety and our our guilt, our uh, being completely immobilized, Very often it comes because we are wrapped up in ourselves. We are trusting in ourselves. We are looking within ourselves for answers. That's exactly what the world tells us to do, isn't it? It's rooted in pride. My view of things is more accurate than yours, God. That's what we're saying my great understanding is deeper than God's understanding. My moral compass and my evaluation of my own spiritual state is truer than God's evaluation. And so our understanding, our view of life, our view of relationships, our view of hardships and suffering are of more value to us Than what God has said. And standing over and against all of our views and all of our understandings is what God has spoken, what God has declared, what God has promised. Unbelief sits in judgment on God in its pride, rejects him, and then trusts in its own illusions of what's real and what matters. The faith that justifies is a faith that overcomes unbelief. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, that's not to say that Abraham never wondered. If you read the book of Genesis, you can see at times Abraham kind of questioning, wondering, you remember Hagar and having Ishmael? But what, God, what Paul is talking about is that the overall trajectory of Abraham's life, he may have struggled here, he may have struggled here, but in the end, Abraham believed God, and he persevered, and he didn't waver. He believed God through all of those things. And do you notice here that Abraham's faith caused him to do the very opposite of what the human race failed to do in Romans chapter 1 that brings wrath on the human race? Humanity did what with God's glory? Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of the created things and worshipped those things instead of the Creator. What does faith produce in Abraham? How does Abraham express his faith? He gave glory to God. It's the reversal of Romans chapter 1. The conclusion then is in verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. There were obstacles, there were challenges, there were impossibilities. And Abraham's faith overcame unbelief. The faith that counts as righteousness is an unwavering faith. The gospel calls us to an unwavering faith, to a faith that overcomes unbelief. And Abraham's justification proves it to be so. Lastly, Abraham's justification proves Jesus was raised for our justification. It proves that Jesus was raised for our justification. Paul's last point here really flows out of this worthiness of God. The gospel calls us to an unwavering faith because God is worthy of an unwavering faith. The words it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Hmm. So they were not written just for Abraham's sake alone, not only to reveal to him how he was justified, but they were written for ours also, for us, so that we would know how to be justified, how we would know how to be made right with God. Listen, Paul is not merely drawing an application from Abraham. He is revealing that we are the intended audience of God's declaration all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and it was counted to him as righteousness, Paul is saying that when God declared that to Abraham on that starry night outside of his tent, God was speaking to you and to me. Because it is his purpose, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So now Paul brings up the resurrection. Paul has talked about Jesus' death, his sacrifice, this, this atoning for sin that was a propitiation, that is, that, that intervened and took God's wrath in our place. And now he brings up the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the dead now becomes the central work of God that we trust in. You could say that, in in one sense, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the new promise. It's the continuation of and the fulfillment of, at the same time, the very promise that was made to Abraham. It brings all of God's promises to culmination. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is what makes all the promises of God accessible to us. Jesus was delivered up as an atonement for our trespasses. That is the forgiveness of sin, the removal of guilt. And, Paul says, he was raised for our justification. Wow. Paul looks at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and he says that Jesus... Jesus' resurrection is actually brings about our justification. That God, in making sure, in securing this righteousness, for it to be able to be applied or imputed to you and to me, so that we can stand before God, righteous. He raised Jesus from the dead to do that. This is the clearest statement in all of the New Testament of a connection between Jesus' resurrection and justification. That without Jesus' rising from the dead, you and I could not be justified. The sacrifice was not enough in the sense that His blood was shed. He had to be raised. And so our justification then comes through Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection secures this righteousness that is given to us. Without it, we can't stand before God just. And this is why later in Romans chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 9, that Paul will say this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God, what, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is a picture of judgment everyone who believes in him will not stand in that courtroom shamed and disgraced and judged and condemned. You have to believe that God raised him from the dead. See, not the God who gives life to the dead and the God who creates everything out of nothing that calls into existence that which does not exist. How else can a spiritually dead rebel ever be made alive? Certainly not by their own will. Certainly not by their own accomplishments. Their own attaining of righteousness. Their own moral compass. But only by the power Of the one who raised Jesus from the dead, gives life to the dead, who regenerates, who gives new life to you and to me. That is our hope. That's the gospel. That is our message, isn't it? It is what we believe. Do we not believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with our mouths that he is Lord? Amen. So, Father, we we come to you then as a justified people, completely depending upon and grateful for your grace in our lives. Lord, we know that our righteousness before you depends on your forgiveness of our sins, your cleansing of us. You have you have taken the record that stood against us and you have nailed it to the cross and our sins, all of our transgressions were expunged. They were done away with in the death of Jesus. Lord, we know and praise you that you have also provided a righteousness for us and that this righteousness can only be had when we humbly come to you and trust what you have promised and believe you. It is both the most simple and easiest thing and the most difficult thing for the human heart to do. In fact, it is impossible. Lord, only you, by awakening our hearts to you, can enable us to grasp with faith, to overcome unbelief in your provision of righteousness for us. And so we give you glory this morning as Abraham did, as our faith is strengthened. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we are working our way through the New City Catechism as a church, and we are, ironically enough, finishing up the Ten Commandments today, and in, a, and in a time in which we are working our way through Romans chapters 3 and 4, which make it clear that we do not attain righteousness by keeping the law, not even having the law, here we are reading as part of a of a. Christian congregation, a a family of people who have been redeemed by grace through faith, uh, the Ten Commandments. And so I just want to give a little perspective that as we read the Ten Commandments, we do not read them as a people who are trying to keep the law, to keep the Ten Commandments as some way of earning God's favor or meriting salvation, right? When we read this catechism, we are reading it as a people who know that these, this law and these particular commandments have already been fulfilled. They were fulfilled in Christ. He, it was his righteousness that we have received, right? Because he kept them perfectly. He kept them perfectly. So as we look at the New City Catechism, portion 12, I'll read the question and you Join me for the answer, all right? What does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive, but speak the truth in love. Tenth, that we are content not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. James chapter 2 verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And that is a summary of the Ten Commandments and the love that we are capable of because God has given us new life. Amen. Amen Amen, indeed. Let's stand together and continue to worship him.